Hello, everybody. Welcome to the quantum part of South By. Um, it's, so as we just got introduced, we're going to talk about quantum computing, and we want to tell you about what is so exciting right now about quantum. There's a lot going on. Uh, there is, we are at sort of an inflection point right now, and we have a great panel to tell you about it. Uh, the panel is from essentially industry people, so it's not academics, it's people from companies that are doing this. And we have everything from uh, really large established companies like IBM to companies that started directly in the quantum realm. Um, as I'm going to let them introduce themselves in a minute, but uh, I'm Antia Lamas-Linares, as I just got introduced. I'm from the Texas Advanced Computing Center, and I, I'm at the boundary between quantum and classical. So I have a background in, in experimental quantum computation, but I work at a supercomputing center uh, right here in Austin, one of the largest in, in the world, actually. And we are super interested in what's coming down in new technologies and computing. What are we going to be able to offer our users a few years down the road, but you know we are already looking into this. Um, so, without further delay, Bo. Great, thanks. Uh, so I'm Bo Ewald. I'm at D-Wave, and I look after kind of the customer. I'm the president of D-Wave International. Look after kind of the customer-facing part of D-Wave. I grew up in high-performance computing. Uh, was at Los Alamos for a long time, ran computing there, and then worked at Cray Research and Silicon Graphics and some startups, some of which did well and some of which blew up, and then uh, have been uh, in the quantum space for about uh, the last five years helping out. And we each have some uh, slides. I'll sort of uh, give a general introduction and then a little bit about our type of quantum computing, and then uh, Jerry and Andrew will talk about theirs. So if we could get the slide thing going. I'm not very good at jokes, so. <laughs> but I do have a t-shirt on. We have lots of great quantum t-shirts. And what does this one say? Where's my cap? So who would have said that? Schrodinger would have said that. That's right. That's right. There's a famous thought experiment that he did. And um, if we're not going to do the slides, I guess we'll just talk. <laughs> Nope. Well. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, <laughs> so quantum computing, the idea for it really started with Richard Feynman. And in 1981, he, famous physicist who many of you will have heard of. Oh, there you go. Hey, there, you go. there he is, right on cue. <laughs> um, so in 1981, Feynman started talking about quantum computing, wrote a paper in 1982. I first met him in 1983 when he came and gave a talk at the 40th anniversary at Los Alamos. And he basically said, maybe you could, rather than trying to build a digital computer to simulate what nature's doing, maybe you could use quantum effects, quantum mechanics, and create a quantum mechanical computer and just kind of run it, and it would model or do its quantum thing, and that's what nature really does. So that was his original idea. And on, we'll go real quickly through this part. But basically, the idea behind any of our quantum computers is that we use... Uh, the same principle. So superposition in our digital world, our bits are a zero and a one. And in, and in the quantum world, they're a zero and a one simultaneously and all forms in between. 
So that's a little weird for people who grew up in the digital world. And then secondly, entanglement means, as opposed to having 10 separate bits, as my fingers might represent, if we're able to cause those bits to become entangled, then we can kind of make coordinated moves through a landscape, for example. And lastly is quantum tunneling, where in the digital world, if we hit a barrier, we have to put more energy in to get over the barrier. In the quantum world, we tunnel through it. And what, of course, what nature's really doing is going to a lower energy state. And then ideas of coherence and all those things become important as well in developing the machines. So the, uh, the uh, next slide, <laughs> when we eventually get there, is, uh, I think, one that basically says that in, in, it doesn't say this, but the point is, in things quantum, there are sort of three big chunks of investment now. One is on quantum devices, quantum sensors, those sorts of things. Another big chunk on quantum communications. And then a third on quantum computing. And the part we're involved with mostly is quantum computing. Estimated probably $3 billion a year now being spent on things quantum of all forms. A huge program in China has just been kicked off, $11 billion in rough numbers. There's a, a, a 1 billion euro program uh, that the European Union has started. And uh, the idea is that those uh, parts of the world, as well as here in the U.S. and in Canada, uh, all believe this is very important and going, going to be part of everyone's future. So big, big programs running around the world. And when you design a quantum computer, you really think about kind of two things. One of those is, what's the architecture that you're going to implement? And the other is, what technology are you going to use? So no different than digital computing. Two big architectures that people are looking at. One are the gate model architectures, which sort of follow the same thinking that we've used in digital computing for a long time. And Jerry will talk more about that. And the other is more like an analog computer. And uh, that, those machines are what we do. And they're called annealing, quantum annealing computers. And so two big architectures, and then how are you going, what are you going to build it out of? So same thing as in the digital world, what's the architecture, what technology you're going to use? Two big architectures, gate and annealing, and then the way we build our qubits, there are many different ways. What most of us have done so far are use superconducting qubits. And um, so we won't go too much deeper into that uh, in our next two minutes, uh, but uh, if we had a picture, we could show you, a slide, we could show you what some of those look like. So quantum annealing, I'll just spend a couple of minutes on that, and basically with our computer, if you have a problem that you can cast as an energy landscape, so think of the Alps, mountains and valleys as an energy landscape rather than a physical landscape, what our computer does is without adding or subtracting, but just using those quantum effects we talked about, it finds the lowest valley or valleys in that quantum landscape probably. So we're going to need to do a little catch up here if we can. Oh well, <laughs> it's quantum. Uh, <laughs> and. Uh, so, so what our machine does is if you have a problem that you can cast as mountains and valleys, we find the lowest valley in that energy landscape probably. Of course, it's not really a three-dimensional landscape. It's an n-dimensional energy landscape. And the probably part is important because we don't guarantee that we found the best answer. Nature and quantum mechanics are probabilistic. So in our case, we probably have found the best answer. What that lends itself toward are optimization problems, probably machine learning, and material science. And so our customers have done a whole host of what I call proto-apps. We have about 50 prototype applications. They're not ready for production yet, but 50 proto-apps 
ranging from uh, Volkswagen doing uh, a uh, traffic flow optimization problem in Beijing, optimizing the flow of taxis in Beijing, to uh, Booz Allen Hamilton working on uh, satellite optimization. One of our customers in Japan, Recruit Communications, said, okay, if you can optimize cars and satellites, how about optimizing the placement of ads on cell phones? So they did some work and were able to demonstrate that. And one of the coolest and kind of most shocking ones to me is in machine learning. And uh, one of our customers in the Washington, D.C. area used our machine and said, we're going to look at the, you know, the, the, all of the polls for the last U.S. election said that Hillary Clinton was going to win by a landslide. And so uh, this fellow said, you know, I'm going to use the kind of weird D-Wave machine, and we're going to look at the same polling data and see if we can't first train it to learn how to analyze polling data and then see what it predicts as it moves along. And surprisingly, what it found were little sort of second and third order effects in the polling data that the classical techniques hadn't seen. And it never predicted that uh, Donald Trump was going to win, but it started giving him like six months before the election a 3% chance and then a 5% chance and finally got up to a 20 or 30% by noticing things that were in some senses hidden uh, in, in the data. So I think with that, uh, and we'll see how Jerry does with the rest of my slides if they come along. And uh, <laughs> hey, there's Kubit. Happy to try to play some slide uh, karaoke here. <laughs> uh, and we can, by the way, we can make these available to you if you want, but they're just sort of introduction and summary of uh, quantum computing. Uh, so uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Jerry Chow. I, I manage the experimental quantum computing group at uh, IBM Research at the T.J. Watson Research Center in uh, Yorktown Heights, New York. Um, and uh, I've been working in quantum computing for uh, since 2005. Uh, I've been at IBM for the last uh, seven and a half years. Uh, and it's been really remarkable to see the kind of progress that the entire field has been, been uh, going through uh, since uh, I started really uh, embarking this field of seeing basically things go from uh, a research lab setting and uh, really needing to understand physics to becoming something that now uh, is discussed here at South by Southwest, right? So uh, capturing the imagination of a lot more people, a lot more industries, a lot of different types of thinkers. Um, and uh, IBM actually has a really uh, very deep history with quantum computing. Um, the first concept of quantum information, you can date back to Charlie Bennett, uh, who uh, first coined the term back in uh, maybe 35 years ago. And in fact, uh, just as both discussed with uh, Richard Feynman, uh, th there was a there was a co-hosted uh, conference between MIT and, and IBM where Richard Feynman talked about exactly that idea of simulating nature and, and wouldn't it be great to to not have to use uh, digital bits to do that. Um, and so, but over the over the course of uh, progression, what you'd really see is that quantum computing was for a long time. Uh, in the minds of theorists and in the minds of, of what can we you know, potentially do with them a long way in the future with, uh, with, with, with quantum applications. What are quantum algorithms that, uh, that will eventually you know, uh, outperform classical algorithms? Uh, but what you've started to see more recently now, though, is that as hardware has progressed, uh, that essentially now we want to explore what can we do in the near term as we're building out real quantum processors uh, that might not be perfect, but we still want to explore what they can do. 
And uh, what, one of the ways that we really wanted to engage this type of discussion and get the broader community to think about that uh, is something that we did two years ago, which was to launch the IBM uh, Quantum Experience or IBM QX. Um, essentially, essentially, it's a cloud-based quantum computer that anyone can go and access. It's, uh, it's free to use. It's a five-qubit quantum processor that's, that's available. Uh, and the idea is to actually take it away from that laboratory setting where you'd have to deal with superconductors and microwave electronics and dilution refrigerators that cool things down, uh, but place it into your hands so that you can even start learning about how to program a quantum processor from your, la your, your laptop or your iPad. Uh, the, the way that the, the Q experience looks today is there's, there's a simple user interface, a graphical interface where you learn about uh, our particular circuit model of quantum computation, learn about these concepts that Bull discussed in, in terms of superposition or entanglement, uncertainty, learn these facets about what quantum computing is and actually see how it can work in particular uh, uh, canonical algorithms. Um, we've been really excited by this, by this, by this project. We've had over 70,000 users that, that have uh, registered to use our service, uh, ranging in many different universities. And I think one of the most exciting aspects of this has been this, this form of using this to enable research. So we've actually had over 60 research papers that have actually emanated from making use of our tools. And uh, we currently have two 5-qubit processors and a 16-qubit processor available for anyone to use. Um, and this really gets the, 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 you can think of it as some kind of democratization of quantum computing, right? We want to get this out in your hands, get people to learn about how it works, have it be discussed in colleges, high schools, uh, and start to actually uh, work on it. Um, beyond this, we've, we also uh, have gone to, to look at the developer community through a, 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 a new project that we called um, KISKit. It's the Quantum Information Software Kit. Um, where we basically uh, have, uh, through a Python uh, wrapper, software demo kit, you can actually access our, our quantum processor. So this gives you a lot more uh, functionality. You can actually start to program a quantum computer, batch together jobs, uh, and access them over the cloud. And from an interface such as a Jupyter notebook, which uh, a lot more developers might be used to. And having Qiskit as a tool uh, is really uh, going to help us flesh out the rest of the software stack so that quantum computing can be useful for uh, even broader communities as we, as we move forward to actually find uh, applications in this near-term space. Thanks, Jerry. All right. Now we'll see if we can do my slides and we'll be set to have a conversation. <laughs> Three, two, one. All right. <laughs> Perfect. So my name is Andrew Fersman. I'm the CEO of a company called OneCubit. Um, would you mind just hitting a, oh, there we go, thank you. Yeah, so I'm actually a huge fan of the work of these guys because OneCubit's really focused on building software for quantum computers. So a great prerequisite for our work is the work that's going on in the hardware industry here. Um, what we're really excited about, you can do me a favor and hit the next one, thanks, yeah. We just see this as an opportunity to really understand what the quantum hardware does and what it does best and what it should be used for and also to understand what problems exist in the real world that should be connected down to that quantum hardware. So we see ourselves as really enabling the connection between quantum computers and the places that quantum computers should be applied. 
All right. There's a lot of large problems that are currently undermanaged, even with the amazing computing resources that we have already. So I've always loved this quote from one of our colleagues at Google, talking about how even with all of the computing resources available at Google, it's still difficult for them to be able to get good answers to the types of really challenging problems that are emerging as they start to investigate things related to material sciences and machine learning, uh, advanced computing, big data, etc. And what I think is going to be really exciting is that there are still a number of things that we actually do like this, that the way that these problems are solved in the real world involve doing experiments in the real world, and quantum computers really should enable us to move to this paradigm, and that's what it's all about, is being able to do things, do experiments, and do simulations that can give us great answers inside a machine and utilizing this quantum resource that we've been talking about in order to get those great answers. So, I think that the state that we're at right now is a very early stage and we need to use our imagination a little bit in order to understand exactly what these machines will do. But even though this is just a spark right now, I think that this is the beginning of an explosion and that as we mentioned earlier, this moment is really the time when things move out of the lab and out of academia and start to become something that we can do at companies and to be engaging with problems and starting to push this forward. So. Uh, that's really, I think, uh, the perfect opportunity to switch it over to you and we can start our conversation. Yeah, so thanks, thanks a lot for giving that background. So first of all, I want to ask um, you to give us a sense of where are we in terms of hardware. I mean, where, if you compare with the, you know, the progress of the semiconductor industry that people are more used to, you know, are we at the vacuum tube stage? Are we at transistors? Are we at printed circuits? Where, where do we stand and um, you know, why is it now that we are so ex excited or why, why is it now that we keep seeing quantum popping up in, in news feeds and things? It seems like every other week there's an announcement related to, to quantum technologies. Um, so why don't I talk about ours first sure. and then uh, we'll go down the line. So, so in our case, we have this different sort of architecture and I've said, as uh, many of you have heard before, that you know, it's, where we are is somewhere like in what must have been the 1950s at IBM and also in the year 2050 in the, the next, you know, in, in the modern uh, century. And so we're kind of past, in, in the mid-50s, IBM and others were switching from vacuum tubes and uh, storage tube memories to these new things called transistors. Wow, was that going to work? And those of you who grew up in scientific computing, our old friend, the now dead language Fortran, hadn't even been invented yet in 1955. And there were no Google Maps and none of that stuff existed. So in some senses, that's where we are. On the other hand, the technology here is so wild and so advanced and so amazing that it's really stepped you know, far into the future. In our case, the uh, D-Wave was founded about 20 years ago, and the architectural idea came from some folks in uh, Japan and academia, MIT, and some people uh, in Europe as well. And these entrepreneurs took that idea and said, you know, if we just knew how to build qubits, we'd be, we'd, maybe we could build a quantum computer. And fortunately, or unfortunately, the big American defense contractor, TRW, was shutting down their, they were being acquired by Northrop Grumman, who decided they didn't want to build superconducting circuits anymore. 
And so there was this idea of a new architecture, there were entrepreneurs, and there were some people who didn't have a job and said, you know, we think we could build superconducting circuits that you could use as qubits. That led then to the first D-Wave machine that Lockheed Martin bought about six years ago, which had 128 of our style qubits, which are different in function than Jerry's uh, qubits. And then uh, that machine's been upgraded a couple of times. Google became the second customer with a 500 qubit machine. They since, and it's Google, NASA, Ames, and their university outreach partner, USRA. And they have upgraded it to 1,000 qubits and then 2,000 qubits. So it's the first of our 2,000 qubit machines <laughs> in the field. And then uh, Los Alamos became our third customer, and then we have uh, about uh, 20 plus other mostly industrial customers who access our systems over the web. So I would say on the hardware technology side, it's like, you know, 2050, sort of. It's way out there, and it's not like anything you've ever seen before. But on the software and the applications, it's more like we're probably past 1955, but we're, you know, maybe in the early 60s or something. But having said that, I think that the hardware technology will continue to develop following somebody's, some new name of somebody's law. But I actually think the software technology around things quantum is going to mature a lot more rapidly and the applications will. And this is going to be a big year. I think we'll come back and talk about that, but this is going to be a big year. Yeah, sure. Uh, I can speak a little bit about um, the circuit model or gate model type uh, progressions of hardware and where we are. Um, so in, in essence, with the circuit model of quant quantum computing, you have to have control over all of the individual qubits. You need to be able to drive them to various states of superposition, entanglement. Uh, and essentially have the entanglement that's controllable across the entire processor as a resource for your computation. Um, now, what's been theoretically proven is that there are no, there are known uh, advantages or known speed ups for certain problems using uh, essentially perfect uh, circuit model quantum, uh, quantum, quantum computers. So there's, there's something known as Shor's algorithm for factoring large numbers. There's Grover's algorithms for, for search. Uh, and these require a large number of essentially perfect qubits. Uh, but the thing is in the hardware world where we are building up these, these physical qubits, uh, they're always subject to a lot of noise and uh, you have things like heating which cause errors in the operations that you want to perform on them. And so what that means is you need to have what's known as error correction or uh, fault tolerant quantum computers. Uh, and so there's a large resource overhead to build this type of large scale uh, perfect style of quantum computer or fault tolerant quantum computer. Uh, where the resource scale could be something like 1,000 to 1 or even 10,000 to 1, meaning that for an application of, of the type of uh, Shor's algorithm, you're talking about needing potentially millions if not tens of millions of qubits. And these are, these are circuit model gate controlled qubits. Um, but wh where we are right now is we're playing with tens to 50, you know, you're hearing numbers like 72 right now. These are the numbers of qubits that, 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 the, that the industry is playing with. And we're still excited, even at this stage, because we're starting to get to this near-term error where we have uh, qubits in the orders of around 100 to 1,000, even in the presence of noise, they become too difficult, too complex to simulate on any type of classical known supercomputer. And so the real, the, the real idea is to find within this type of system where even though there is still noise, 
how can we actually find useful applications that, uh, that, that provide quantum advantage, right? We know that we're not going to necessarily be able to model this in, in, in a, in a, in a, in a supercomputer. Super now can we turn that around to find advantages in, uh, say, chemistry, machine learning, or optimization? And so the, really the progression really places us at this kind of up, uh, this noisy intermediate scale era of, of, of uh, circuit model uh, quantum computing right now. And uh, you probably compared the best is to around the 19, 1950s, 1960s of computing. So. Yeah, well, I had a similar conversation just recently with uh, someone at Microsoft, and I was saying it feels like the 50s, and he was saying it's like the 1940s right now. But, you know, I think the, the point is that when you think back to the types of really early machines, the, like the Enigma machine that was used to break codes back in the day, they were these large, uh, expensive machines that were designed to do something and do it really well. And... We don't compare the Enigma machine and to see its value as it relates to the types of servers that exist today. We think about what was it able to do that we weren't able to do at the time. And I think that's exactly the right way to be thinking about quantum computers today is, you know, the D-Wave machine is on its third or fourth generation right now. And when we think about classical machines, you know, we've been making Intel-style chips for decades now. And... Uh, so it's interesting to understand that, but the real question for me is what types of things aren't possible with classical computers and how can we enable those functions with the types of machines that these guys are building here? So uh, although you'll, it's, it's going to be very tempting and you'll hear a lot of people trying to compare where classical computers and quantum computers are and what they can do, I think the most interesting thing to be paying attention to are what are the types of things that classical computers are actually really bad at that we shouldn't be using them for, and how can we be thinking about building quantum computers that are able to solve those types of problems? And instead of it being a head-to-head -head race of this versus that, it should be more like an expanding Venn diagram where now we can do more things because we have different types of machines. And I think it's one of the points that will probably come up over and over again, but as opposed to uh, really thinking about these as we're going to be replacing classical computers with quantum computers, instead you could think of it almost like the way that we currently use GPUs, where you have a central processor and it farms off certain types of tasks to specialized processors that do those things very well. That's the model I use when I try and understand where quantum computing is today and how it'll be used. Right, so that's really interesting. You know, coming from a supercomputing center like TAC, where we serve, you know, we have researchers from all over the, the country, even the world, and people do all sorts of computations we don't necessarily know. But we do, you know, when we look at how our, how our resources are used, we know that, say, almost 30% of them get used to simulate, you know, quantum systems, quantum chemistry. Mm -hmm. is, is that the kind of problem where you think... Um, you know, these first eventual quantum processing units will be used? Yeah, I, I think quantum chemistry is one of these ones that, one of these applications which we're really excited about, in particular because it kind of dates back to what Feynman said, of course, um, uh, but also we just know that there is a limitation of the of supercomputers to understand molecular structure, right? As you get larger molecules, the the interactions between all of the electrons just becomes too complex for you to actually uh, efficiently model on 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 traditional computing. And uh, really, the idea is is how do we uh, build some of that to make use of the quantum resource that we have? And 
in fact, last year we were able to, to do um, some very rudimentary but simple quantum chemistry experiments, uh, basically showing that we can model the, the molecular energy of, of hydrogen, which is not a very complex molecule, uh, lithium hydride and beryllium hydride. But uh, it still showed that there is a path towards doing that and that there is a route to using some of these near-term uh, types of processors that we're building to study uh, something like uh, molecular structure and molecular energies. And just sort of building on what I was saying before, that's a great example of an area where the sort of dirty secret of classical computing is that if you have to use 30% of a supercomputing cluster in order to do some very basic simulation, you know you probably have a problem that's not very well suited for the kind of resource that you have available. I mean, when you think about how powerful just the cell phone that you have in your pocket is, needing to use thousands and thousands of supercomputers all kind of hooked together in order to do some basic understanding of what happens when you bring two pieces of matter together, to me that really indicates that you're doing it wrong. And what I love about quantum computers is that it's really rethinking the problem from the ground up and saying, how would we build a computer particularly or specifically designed to address these types of problems and allowing the problems to influence the direction that the machines evolve so that you're building something with an eye towards the problem that you want to solve. And I think almost everybody agrees that the first use of a quantum computer will be simulating the quantum world as was, you know, foretold so many years ago. Um, and we're just getting to the point where the very first experiments are proving that this is the right direction. And of course, there's many things that'll go past that, but even if all quantum computers ever did was to be able to really help us in this molecular simulation era, that would still be a huge advance because it's something that classical computers are just so bad at. Yeah, and I guess I would just uh, finish by saying real-world example of the system that we have at Los Alamos. It's a 1,000-qubit machine, and it's, it's probably the most heavily used of all of our machines. It's running at over 90%. Um, plus, they consume a lot of our own internal resources on a 2,000-qubit machine. Um, and that machine is running about 40 to 50% of the, again, proto-apps, prototype applications are optimization-oriented. Probably 20% or a little more are machine learning oriented and the other roughly 30% are a collection of a bunch of things and where um, sort of the broad category of quantum material science is one of those. And then Oak Ridge, now in getting ready for their exascale computing, has started with uh, buying about 20% of one of our machines that we expect to build up over the next couple of years as that gets ready. And just given the nature of the people there, more chemists and more metallurgists, my expectation is that you'll really see those, those numbers I quoted for Los Alamos will probably switch around at Oak Ridge. Right. So... Um, going down to a different uh, topic a little bit. So how do you see both all of your companies have been working on the quantum on this quantum computing for for a little while already. Um, do you see that lately there has been, you know, uh, sort of more little companies or other parts of the ecosystem starting to fill in? Um, Andrew, maybe you can. Yeah. So we had a nice dinner last night. And we were talking about the fact that we're starting to see entire programs dedicated towards building ecosystems of small quantum computing companies designed to explore 
individual facets of what you could do with these machines. And so at the University of Toronto, on the other side of the country from where uh, D-Wave and OneCubit are based, um, there's an accelerator program that's running 20 startups at a time through, just giving them exposure to what quantum computers do, helping people get their hands on. And I think we probably all agree that no matter how many smart people we have within our organizations, some of the smartest people in the world will always be outside. And if we can get these resources into their hands, then they can probably show us what these machines are for and what this software is for. The more people who get their hands on these machines, the better it'll be for everybody. So I think that one of the most exciting things is watching a whole bunch of uh, young people who have ideas of what they could do with these machines get their hands on them for the first time and either validate or pivot and move on to new ideas. But I, I think that that's going to be one of the things that really drives this from that lab era that we've seen in the past to the era of you know fail fast and move on that we're all familiar with in the startup ecosystems. Yeah, and I think that this is really something that we've started to see a lot of because of our work on the quantum experience and with uh, with Qiskit, which is people wanna people wanna uh, contribute in an open source fashion and start to develop new ideas around it. Uh, and I think what's really interesting about it, and this came up in a, a couple of the discussions already, in terms of where are we with software? Well, it's hard to even say what a proper compiler is. It's hard to say what's a operating system at this point. We have various APIs to hardware. We have various representations that, that, that tell us about what kind of gates that we can perform. But constructing all of that and gluing it into a real software stack is going to take a, a, a large effort. And there's room for many different players to sit at the top of the stack where they can work with particular industries and, and, uh, and look for applications. There's room for people to benchmark the, the underlying performance or to make improvements to the underlying performance. Uh, and then there's room for um, uh, other ideas for how do you actually translate and map problems more efficiently. So there's an, we're starting to see all these different companies start to want to get get access, want to work within this larger uh, community so that we can really uh, uh, progress and make uh, improvements faster. Yeah, and I would agree completely. You know, in the world, there may be like 10 hardware groups that can design quantum computers, some smallish number like that. But what quantum computing needs more than anything are millions of smart people thinking about how to apply it and another set of smart people thinking about the software tools and how, how, how those will evolve. And what's encouraging to me is that with many of our remote access customers, our cloud customers, uh, Volkswagen, for example, one year ago at uh, the CBIT conference in Hanover announced the traffic flow optimization problem. Well, we're now on our second generation of projects with them, and they range from material science to another optimization to a manufacturing problem to a pricing uh, problem that they're looking at. So. So, you know, more smart people thinking about how to apply these things, I think, is the key in the end. And I'm also encouraged, and part of why I think the software world is going to grow more rapidly this time around compared to the digital world, is that uh, we have open software now. Mm -hmm. We don't have to fight the proprietary software battles like we might have 
before these gentlemen were even born. Um, and uh, so, and there, there is an effort, the Linux Foundation, we've all been at a meeting, the Linux Foundation sponsored about uh, open software for quantum computers. There's an IEEE, a couple of standards efforts that are gonna get going. Uh, and uh, so lots and lots of stuff going on. And uh, our, if just in, so I don't forget it, uh, one of our mutual friends, Worley, uh, is giving a talk, I think, on Tuesday evening, and he's also involved kind of in the midst of all of the uh, improving the software. So that might be interesting to you as well. But was this the part where we sort of turn and say, like, maybe even you? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah. Do you find the, the drivers of, you know, of, of innovation is, is shifting? You know, up to now, it's been academic, right, and government. But lately, in the, in the U.S., it's very stark. You, you see that there are some very, in Canada, very, very big uh, companies getting involved. But in the rest of the world, there's been, uh, somebody already mentioned the 1 billion euros that Europe is putting in pure research, and China has some huge efforts there. Um, do you see that, that landscape shifting, or is it, is it still mostly driven academically? I get the sense that uh, as people start to have the first success stories, it will pivot very quickly to private capital going and chasing these opportunities. And uh, so when, when we think about the right way for governments, I think, to get involved in any industry is to kind of help spark these infant industries to make sure that they have uh, enough of an existence that they can get to the stage where they're being pulled along by the demand for what they can do as opposed to pushed out by the companies and governments that, that are about them. And it feels like, again, that's really the process that we're going through right now. Yeah, I'd say that uh, what you're starting to see is really uh, certainly there's a shift more towards engineering of a lot of the systems that we're building, but uh, having that core uh, science background and, and, and funding that, making sure that, uh, you know, the next generation of qubits or the next generation of, of uh, architectures is seeded properly, uh, and that's still going to come from academia. So we, we need to make sure that uh, this type of coexistence continues, and, and uh, I would say that we're in this model right now uh, throughout the world where you're starting to see um, rapid development of technology uh, concurrent with uh, advanced theoretical and academic type explorations. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's different from the old model, which was things were done, uh, you know, to, to, to end, and then it goes to be uh, right. development, and then cycled, right? Now it's, everything's kind of concurrent at once, and I think that's really exciting for, for, uh, for the entire community. Yeah, I think we just generally echo that. I think the reality is we're still kind of in the research and experimentation phase from the application perspective on these machines, no matter which one it is, and, he, and the companies who aren't here. And, and so that tends then toward having the users be sort of government-sponsored or research labs like Google's uh, Quail, Quantum Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. Uh, so, you know, so big operations that can invest in kind of long-term uh, technologies like this. But what I also know is that as soon as the first killer application comes along or hero problem comes along that people can make money with, these things are just going to rocket. So if you believe that's coming, then the time to get started is today. And that's basically what Andrew's business is, is helping people think about their problems of tomorrow so that they're ready. And I would just add that one of the other areas where it really does make sense to 
invest beforehand and that can't just be done entirely from the business side is the capacity building for the talent that we're all going to be employing as this stuff explodes. And the time to start learning about quantum computers is not just after that first hero application <laughs> yeah. comes along. And so uh, I'm really encouraged to see how many people are going into this field and being able to actually, on their first day of their first year in their first program, actually get their hands on some of these machines and really to be steeped from the beginning of their educations in understanding what quantum processing really is. So do you find your pipeline of people that are available for you to hire is steep enough at the moment, or is it... It is for us right now because we're a small company. We're currently at about 60 people or so, but if we become sort of a quantum IBM-sized organization that's all staffed with the kinds of people that we have right now, then I don't know where I'm going to go get those couple hundred thousand people from. So uh, the good news is I think everything's building appropriately, and we're seeing, I think the interest is absolutely keeping up with the reality of what's happening on the ground. Um, so it feels like everything's healthy and kind of progressing correctly, um, but I'm also just really encouraged to see that there's so many people who are starting to be excited about this. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about how many people are even in this room compared to uh, who would have showed up if we were five years ago thinking about this topic. So it's a great indicator of the fact that this is a very healthy ecosystem. Yeah, and, and I think that for sure, in terms of the how to get started, and there are a lot of tools now out there, a lot of resources for you to, to learn about quantum. Uh, in the past, we were always hiring physicists. Now we're getting more computer scientists, uh, more uh, engineers, right? Uh, mi microwave engineers, there's a lot of different disciplines that are now being tied into uh, quantum computing and you're starting to see the various universities start putting together quantum engineering or quantum computing uh, uh, you know, interdisciplinary fields, right, and, and majors. Um, and I think that this is just a really exciting direction to, to, to broaden that aspect to get more people, you know, in the workforce for the future. Uh, and then there are also open education tools like uh, the MIT edX courses on quantum computing, various resources out there for people to get started. And in our case, there's a lot of interest, so we have a lot of folks who would, you know, want to be working on this thing that's at the leading edge, and but they come from typically HPC backgrounds or computer science backgrounds or those sorts of things. So there are there is no big, you know, National Science Foundation program here that's sponsored quantum computing education or applied quantum computing. And so, you know, I think as we go along, we'll look forward to centers like TAC having quantum computers so that uh, uh, academia can uh, access them as well and move forward. So we have, I would also say, and this is almost a joke, that we have almost as many press people interested in quantum computing as we do people who are applying for jobs. <laughs> All right. I think we we just we're just about hitting the time to open the the floor for questions. Um, so I think there is a mic somewhere in. Anybody questions? Mike is there in the center of the corridor. Sure. Go. Um. Hi, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Kenny Chen. I work in ethics, policy, and security around emerging technologies. And um, there, you know, in talking about uh, Enigma earlier, um, you know, quantum computing is often um, uh, compared 
within that kind of militaristic uh, structure, code cracking, all of that kind of stuff. And so um, as the quantum arms race continues between countries, um, you know, US, China, et cetera, uh, what should we be concerned about um, in terms of um, everything from our current cybersecurity kind of standards as well as blockchain and other kinds of things being um, eventually hackable? Um, and what might be overblown in terms of people's concerns? Uh, maybe I'll start. So, yeah, certainly the the cybersecurity aspect and breaking encryption is one of the things that comes up a lot when that's in the discussions of quantum computing. And uh, I would say that it's one of these uh, one of these ideas that that uh, I wouldn't be too afraid of it at the moment. Uh, for one thing, in order the the actual application of trying to to, to break encryption requires uh, a a fault tolerant quantum computer that runs Shor's algorithm, and this is where, to the best of our knowledge today, it'll require potentially hundreds of millions of of, of uh, circuit models type qubits. Now, of course, you know things might change, but uh, at the least, it's one of these things which. Uh, it's so much more important to focus on what we can do with w where we are today that something like that we should keep a mind on it but I'm not so sure that the horizon of, of that is, is as close as we think it is. Uh, that being said, we were discussing last night, uh, it's, it's important to start even thinking about the changing the protocols if, if need be for how we encrypt data, right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess that our conversation yesterday was really about the fact that just because some of these things might be far away, especially as it relates to keeping of secrets, it's probably important to recognize that the types of encryption that we're using right now um, are susceptible to these future machines. And so in the future, you'll probably be able to come back and read the types of things that have been encrypted with the types of encryption that we're using widely today. So absolutely it makes sense to be thinking about transitioning away from our current methods in anticipation of the success of all the types of machines that are being built here. But you'll know when your encryption's in danger because by then we will have had such amazing success with things like advanced materials that we'll all be, you know, floating around in flying cars, etc. And uh, <laughs> so I think that there's there's a lot of excitement about this, and it's it's all based on a, a correct understanding of the theoretical capabilities of these machines. But it's also fair to say that there are a lot of exciting advances that will come and things that the quantum computers should be able to do long before that's the biggest risk. And I would just echo it. You know, when, when Richard Feynman came up with this idea, he, Shor's algorithm hadn't been invented. He didn't think that was going to be the application of these machines. Shor's algorithm came along 10 years later, and it's going to be at least another 10 years or more before anybody's running it at, at any uh, size. I believe we don't, and, and Jerry and his folks don't, and I don't believe anyone else does. But I think Andrew said it best, and I may not get it quite right, but you know, if I know somebody's going to break into my house next year, maybe I ought to start getting ready for that and prepare against it. So. Yeah, just to complete that, there, there are, you know, agencies are preparing for this. There are uh, calls for quantum secure cryptographies and versions of all sorts of protocols. So that, that is actually going on. And on the other hand of that, you have quantum crypto, which is a technology we, we're not being, we didn't talk about today, but it's, it's a quantum technology that complements quantum computing. 
Excellent. Thank you. Um, first off, thanks, guys. That was super interesting. Um, so I go to NYU and I study computer science. So, but I know absolutely nothing about quantum computing. So I was wondering, first off, where's like a good place to get started? What kind of like resources? Because um, I don't really know much about what's out there. And then the other question I had was, um, what kind of consumer-facing applications uh, do you foresee for f coming from co quantum computing? So. Uh I'll make a plug for going to our tools that we have online. <laughs> uh, so I mean, through IBM, uh, IBM's website, IBM Q, we have access to the to the uh, to the cloud-based environment of, of of learning how to actually program one of our type of quantum computers. Uh, you you through Qiskit.org, you have access to our GitHub repository on our open open source project for uh, for for programming a quantum computer and accessing it via an API. Uh, and throughout our community, we have things like uh, message boards. We have all the papers that have been written by our team, by by external collaborators, by external users of our our, our tools. Uh, and so it's it's kind of a one-stop shop for a lot of uh, info there. Uh, outside of that, there's discussions on Quantigator that are happening on Reddit, on Stack Stack Overflow, and uh, our team and our collaborators definitely always go there to help answer questions as well. Maybe to, to your second point, um, you know, we're trying to actually build those types of applications that you're talking about, and some of what we see, especially for the D-Wave style of machine, these annealers, we think there's actually a lot of applications um, that could be very relevant to the finance world, looking at optimization anytime where you're asking the question of, how can I get the most of this while spending the least of that? Um, finance people are really interested, so there's some really interesting stuff that's starting to bubble up around the annealing paradigm and understanding how that might relate to what's happening in finance. And then again with the uh, early stage machines, before we actually get to the point where there's error correction on the circuit models, there's a lot of hope that we can start to do some uh, very small calculations that really advance what's possible in physics. But that small molecule stage for drugs might be the sort of very upper limit. Um, below that, even just thinking about new uh, or the properties that would come from combining small atoms in, in unique ways to be able to build novel types of materials. All of this is something where I don't think any of us know exactly what it will look like, but when you go and you start logging in and, and taking advantage of this, um, I think that's going to be when we find out exactly what those applications look like. And, and for me, that's the state that we're at right now, is where you're going to get back to me and tell me what you've been using it for, and that's how I'll know what the future's going to look like. I think in computer science or the application areas, there are no, uh, you know, uh, programs that are way ahead of the others in terms of sort of the basis for applied quantum computing. So go to school where you want get a great foundation, keep an open mind, and stay curious. And that'll, you know, that's how, what this world is going to be. Hi. Uh, so my question is this. Uh, I work in innovation for a large company, uh, but it's, not, it's a commercial company. It's not a scientific or engineering company. And uh, the problem I run into when I talk to the executives, because I can see potential applications of quantum computing into our business, but basically when I, told my, when I tell my CEO about this, he just rolled his eyes and it doesn't, there's, there's an education problem and I have trouble communicating about it because it's, it's not very intuitive and it's quite complicated to explain to someone who does not have a scientific background. Mm -hmm. So do you have any advice for me? 
I would say that your advice should be tell your CEO to go and talk to the CEO of Dow and the CEO of Bosch and the CEO of all of the companies that are starting to do significant investment. We've had investment from the Royal Bank of Scotland and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And all of these are really led from so the support comes right down from the top. And I think that many of the organizations that have had the painful experience previously of saying, you know, I'm a financial options exchange, so what do computers have to do with my business? And then later on to realize that actually a whole financial options exchange can happen inside a computer and that this is the wrong moment to be realizing this now that your competitors have all moved in that direction. Um, all of this strikes me as being... Uh, exactly the kind of motivation that's necessary in order to get some of that top-down buy-in. And when you really think about what the cost is of starting to investigate and starting to think a little bit off the corner of your desk about this technology now versus the cost of not getting involved and having it be actually incredibly relevant to your business, um, I think that it's a pretty easy calculus uh, and that it shouldn't be that difficult. Um, and the nice thing is you don't have to go out and you know buy a billion dollar machine. There's uh, cloud access, there's free resources online, and as you start to see that success, you can incrementally increase your expenditure as it relates to the, uh, the, the traction that you're seeing within the organization. So there are easy ways to take small steps right now, um, and probably being able to show that there are other organizations that have mm -hmm. already taken that leap is a great place to start. Yeah, I mean, similar, JP Morgan Chase. Uh, we have a bunch of cute network work, um, clients who are engaging with us to learn more about it. Samsung, uh, a bunch of materials companies, JSR. They want to understand exactly you know, what is the real horizon for this and they understand that this is the time to get started, right? Because this is where, like Andrew said, you don't want to be caught not doing it. And uh, even though, even though the, uh, the, the, the horizon is a little bit murky for when that killer app hits, right? But uh, as the hardware progresses, as more people are starting to use this, as the community builds up, uh, you're going to see a lot more steam in terms of, 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 of uh, this pushing forward. In, in our case, we have about these 50-ish proto apps, and they're all, all done by customers. And I would say 60% of them are national labs and university people, but the other 40% are businesses. So uh, we have them in a PDF, and if you send me an email, I'll send them to you, and you, know, you can see if they're applicable to your business. But there are other people like your business who are trying it out, and many of them now are on their second and third and fourth projects. So, Thank you. Hi, thank you again for your presentation today. Uh, in the Q&A, RBS, CBOE, um, several of the JP Morgan have all come up. Could you speak a little bit more uh, explicitly about how this is being applied to the financial markets? Is this for clearing? Is this for momentum trading? What's the, what, what are your best, what applications are you seeing people prototype now? I think because of the fact that um, some of the native strengths of these machines are around optimization, a lot of the first experiments that happened were related to things like portfolio optimization. And what we've recognized is as we've started to explore a little bit deeper, um, most people who do portfolio optimization thinking about or think about optimizing what's the best mix of assets that I can hold right now and then they ask themselves that same question again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. The types of resources that we have from quantum machines might allow us to say 
if I think about all of the possibilities of today and all of the possibilities of tomorrow and start thinking about this as this like branching tree system, if you want to be able to navigate the best course so that if you have an idea of where you'd like to be, say, in a year from now in terms of uh, what your holding should look like and where you are now, what's the best path down that tree that you should take in order to make sure that you can minimize your transaction costs while still being in the best place, um, not from a myopic right now standpoint, but understanding how can I maximize my total returns, for example. So I know that that's somewhat technical, but these are the sorts of things that we're starting to see already. And in fact, some of the work that was done on the example that I just shared um, was actually done at some of the large financial companies that have published papers now on this. Uh, and even to the point where JP Morgan uh, just recently published a 51-page report specifically on a type of hierarchical method of portfolio construction that's perfectly amenable to the sorts of machines that Bose organization is building right now. Um, and this is all publicly available. So uh, you can always look at quantum hierarchical methods of stock uh, portfolio construction if you'd like to blow your brains out on that one. <laughs> Cool, thank you. Hi, uh, thanks. My name is Andrew Ochoa. I work with Worley at Strangeworks, and also I'm a scion of Helmet Catscriber, who I think you all know very well. Um, I was creeping through um, IBM's website, and I found a graphic that claims uh, quantum annealing is a dead end. Uh, I think Mr. Uh, Ewald would disagree, and uh, I do also, since uh, it's been shown that quantum annealing can effectively simulate gate model uh, quantum devices and vice versa. So um, I'd like to hear your opinions on, on who do you think is going to win. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Ewald, do you think uh, DOA is going to come out on top since you um, have two orders of magnitude more qubits and can probably simulate uh, efficiently a quantum uh, gate device? Or Mr. Chow, do you think uh, fault-tolerant uh, quantum gate devices are going to come out ahead? Okay, so um, the the particular graphic you're referring to, and I, I, I know it, it's it's about uh, particularly that with with the annealers that are currently being designed, that it doesn't particularly scale towards a a fault tolerant machine. Now, certainly, that's different from the the which, which I think that you're referring to is just that a uh, a, a an adiabatic quantum computer can in fact also be mapped to a, a uh, uh, gate model, right? Yes. But that requires a whole bunch of different other technical details including uh, things like, you know, having better coherence and, and different couplings and it becomes a, a significantly potentially different architecture, right? So uh, the, the, our, our point of view there is that, that we believe that it requires, you know, the full controls of a, a um, uh, of entanglement of supervision of, of every single of the, one of the qubits so that you can explore all of the, the, the quantum volume in some sense. Uh, and that's kind of the near-term picture of be, being able to use that even in the, in the, in the um, presence of noise. And then in the long term, be able to use that uh, for, for realizing error correcting codes, which, which, is, which is absolutely going to be necessary for any type of fault tolerant application. So we're not dead, and uh, and I know Jerry would never wish us that, but uh, but you know, but people have said maybe the broader thing that they have said is that the the quantum annealing architecture is not a universal architecture, 
What, you know, great. Um, without uh, error correction, I think, you know, Jerry's architecture has uh, some struggling to be a universal architecture as well. So to me, that's sort of uh, who cares. The reality is that we're in a state of quantum diversity, if you will. It's very early days. There are different architectures, and ours are going to be good at some, and the gate model uh, machines or the circuit-based machines are going to be good at other things. And I don't think there's any winners and losers yet. I think we're in a period for the next at least 10 years where these two architectures and the implementation technologies, people are going to try them, and we're going to find what they're good at and what they're not good at. And I wouldn't be surprised if one or two other architectures and implementation technologies technologies come along as well. In the longer term, if you were trying to build a general purpose quantum computer, and I'm saying away from the charged word of universal, a general purpose one, what might that be? Well, you might want to be able to run multiple quantum programs. You would want to be able to have them be different programs. You'd want them to be repeatable. And there are paths to get to that uh, with Jerry's architecture to add more error correction and in our architecture to, to sort of improve the quality of our qubits and the connectivity. So there are multiple paths to that future. But today, you know, we're, just, we're very early days. It's sort of like a, it was 20 years ago when NVIDIA was getting started. They had this new architecture that was really good at this one thing. And then there were the... 64-bit uh, Intel type and AMD type of architectures. Did one of those kill each other? No, they didn't. They each had a function, and over time, they've kind of grown to be able to pick up good things from each other, and that's what's going to happen here. So this is a good time to stop. It's just about our time. I would say that it's a great question, and we should do this next year and figure out how things are evolving and where we are. Um, Thank you very much. I think we'll hang around a little bit over in the, in the lobby, but we can't stay here. And, and maybe yeah. just, just one thing in terms of getting started. So if Patricia Baumhart would stand up and raise your hand. Patricia was the one. She's sort of the goodwill tech ambassador for all of Austin, and she was the one who got this started. So thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for answering my question.